Today we'll begin in just a moment by reading the text of 1 Samuel chapter 27 through the second verse of chapter 28. Don't worry, it's just 16 verses. And as soon as we do so, you'll immediately have all sorts of questions. At that point, we can begin to sort out those questions. And you'll also immediately notice as we finish reading that this section, this passage today, is not complete as far as how the story goes. In other words, it's not resolved. And it has more or less a, quote, to be continued, unquote, message at the end of it. But this passage does stand by itself in some very, very important ways. So if you're not there already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27 as I read from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerelamites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David thinking, he's made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. 
Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now there's numerous surprises in this account, is there not? In the preceding chapter, we left thinking how right David had gotten it, even in the midst of great distress. He'd been assured by the Lord that Saul was indeed powerless to kill him, and therefore there was no way that the Lord's specific promise to him in becoming the king of Israel could be stopped. Chapter 27 ends with David's hope firmly fixed upon the Lord and his word. So if we're not familiar with David's complete story here, we would probably be thinking that he has finally arrived as we finish chapter 27. He's constantly displaying his genuine faith in the Lord in ways that befit his anointing as king. Nothing can rattle him. Instead, what do we see? Now we read and see, and we have to come face to face with an abrupt change. And we're probably not quite sure what the nature of this change is or what it means. So much weakness is exposed here. And lying and subterfuge and even specific types of genocide. Add to this the fact that this text makes absolutely no mention of God. This passage does not say anything about what God is doing or about what his position is about what David is doing. In other words, the writer gives us no indication of David's rightness or wrongness. It's silent. So right off, we need to ask, well, does this silence mean that the writer approves of David's course of action? How would you answer that? Just off the top of your head. Not necessarily. Biblical authors often report about events without endorsing them. It'd be like giving testimony about a theft without approving the stealing. So we must go through the contextual facts and clues here very carefully, and even then there is much to consider. Overall, might as well tell you right up front, my position is that this passage is sympathetic to David's extremely tough situation and the gravity of it, 
But, and yet, the passage presents David's actions as being mainly in the wrong. Now this is debatable. Commentaries go all over the place with this. But this is not the first instance, I believe, where a text shows genuine, sympathetic compassion to the situation of a believer and at the same time records the events that are off the charts going the wrong direction and wrong. The scriptures, as we have noted many times before, do not give us sanitized pictures of its characters. Hopefully you have noticed that. Also, that may bother a whole lot of us. The scriptures in really one of the best known events in David's life later on in 2 Samuel 11 when after David has been reigning for quite a while, record the account of David's sin with Bathsheba. His weakness then in a time of strength and power when he was reigning as a great king. Here in chapter 27, we see David's weakness not in a time of strength and power, but in a time of anxiety and affliction. Now, how do we know that David's actions in chapter 27 are mainly off course? From the context of this book, first of all, because God has repeatedly shown David that he, the Lord, was more than capable of keeping him safe from Saul, even in Israel. In chapter 18, Saul was supposed to keep his promise to David because David had killed the giant Goliath. Remember that? But instead, Saul imposed a seemingly impossible task for David to complete so that David would incur the wrath of all the Philistines. But, by God's grace, David was able to complete this impossible task twice over. Every time Saul tried to entrap David, hoping the enemies of Israel would finally get him, David, by God's grace, was able to prevail and become more and more of a hero to the people. And in chapter 23, Saul was about to seize David, but was suddenly called back when a messenger arrived telling him that the Philistines were attacking and marauding And so Saul left to fend off some of those attacks. And then, in incredible stories, two times David spared Saul's life after after David saw firsthand how helpless and how hopeless Saul was. All of this was evidence that God had indeed done what? Rejected Saul from being king. Now, just the way chapter 27 begins should lay this question to rest. The first really 
main reason for thinking that his actions in chapter 27 are off the mark is the context that we just went over, the litany of how God had showed him um, that Saul was impotent when God had made David king. He was not going to let Saul kill him. He knew that. But that didn't squelch the ongoing reality that Saul was still probably going to be after him as long as David was alive. David was not stupid. He was not foolish. He knew that Saul's words of repentance, etc., etc., were just hot air. And he lived under this pressure. And he didn't live under this pressure alone. He had 600 men and what? Their households with them. A generous account would say that there was 2,000 people that he was responsible for taking care of in the middle of nowhere. The pressures are absolutely enormous. But just by how chapter 27 begins, this question of whether his actions were going to be right or wrong is really put to rest. Look at it. Then David said in his heart, In other words, what he's getting ready to say here in this first verse is a record of what David is telling himself, what he is preaching to himself, the counsel that he's chewing on and emphasizing. This is Biblical Counseling 101. What you tell yourself, what you chew on, what you continually focus on, what you think about, which is what you are preaching to your own heart is going to lead to what you do. And what is he preaching to himself? Look at the text. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines? Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Don't you judge this too quickly. This man was under enormous pressure. The text is sympathizing with that in one really important way. But still, the question that we've got to ask Is David telling himself the truth? Is David preaching to himself the truth? Is David counseling himself with the truth? Absolutely not. David persuades himself that Saul's hand is about to prevail in taking his life. You and I do this all the time, and it's why we can't handle life, why we are fearful, why we are depressed, why we are going the wrong direction. Everything that gets us in trouble, the actions follow from we are not preaching from the Bible, the truth to our hearts. 
We are not standing on what we know is true. We're standing on how we feel or what our impression of the situation is. And we chew on it and we chew on it and we get bitter and we hold grudges and we get mad at God. This is where the battle is, first and foremost. It's what we tell ourselves is true. As a result of David thinking that what God has showed him over and over and over and over and over and over again in this book. Because haven't we just been going like this, this whole, through all these chapters? What God has showed him as being true, what he's saying is that it's not true. As a result of him thinking that what God said is true is not true, what he kept saying to himself then determined his actions. This is not really rocket science. This is common, or it should be, biblical understanding. It's why God calls us to meet together often. It's why he says we need to hunger and thirst after his word. It's why we are regularly supposed to feed on the Lord's Supper together to remind us of the truth because we forget it that quick. All of us, including David. So are we surprised? That the actions coming forth from this untruth would be wrought with every kind of rationalized self-preservation techniques. Every kind of those things imaginable. Should that surprise us? We should not be surprised. The sad part about all this is how close what David resorts to hits home with us, isn't it? David was in between a rock and a hard place. Yet he, let this sink in, he looks to the Philistines instead of his God as his security. Each of us, while not anywhere near being one of God's covenant kings, unless you're holding a secret desire you have or a perception that you're a lot greater than you think you are. We're not one of God's covenant kings, but we can still relate to this danger, can we not, of leaning on something else less than the everlasting arms. Dale Rice, Ralph Davis writes, Our concerns are practical, though, when we look at this chapter. Is there any way that I might avoid deceiving myself with a substitute? Uh, how can I and how should I go about leaning on the Lord? Well, we need to start off with the answer that Scripture gives. And it's 
so much more simple than we want to admit. See, we want to keep this so complicated that we rationalize it into an excuse. But it is straightforward. And it is by talking to yourself, by talking truth to yourself, especially by speaking to yourself the truth about God. So the first of three big lessons in this chapter is to lean on your true security. Teach yourself how to have warning flags go up when you see yourself not doing this. Pray for God's mercy in order to make these issues clear. And right off the bat, we we need to make sure that we get an accurate picture of what this running away to the Philistine city of Gath entailed for David. Had David done this before? Every one of you should know this. Yes, David had done this before. Chapter 21, not too long after he killed Goliath who happened to be from Gath. Not smart, David. And we're shaking our heads, but we do the same thing. David realized that he was in big trouble at that first time, so he pretended to be crazy, and it worked. Achish, the king, didn't want any more crazy people in his city. So he let David go. God's grace and mercy are great. But now in chapter 27, Achish welcomes him, thinking he suddenly got a fabulous mercenary force and enjoying the evident disfavor David is experiencing from Israel's King Saul. A lot of politics in this. David plays up to Achish then, with the logical argument that Achish needs elbow room and gas since the influx of 600 men and their families must be draining on the royal Philistine court. So David asked for a county town, a country town to live in. Achish agrees. And sends David off to Ziklag, this town has had been, get this, had been allotted to the tribe of Judah under Joshua, but it had never been conquered. Do you see a rationalization coming? Oh, great idea. Great idea, Achish. We were supposed to have this town anyway, and we never got it. So, this is God will showing me what to do. Cleverness plus rationalization equals big trouble. So ironically, David would now be based in and actually rule over a town that was meant to be part of Judah. Now if this isn't crazy enough, now David and his men become desert raiders of other desert raiders. People whose this was their identity. And who are they? The Geshurites, the Gerzites, and who? The Amalekites. The thorn in Israel's flesh from day one almost. 
And he would raid those towns, bringing back livestock and goods, giving Achish his share. David is clever. There is no doubt about that. It sounds like a great strategy. But David incurs even more favor from Achish by telling him he is raiding Israelite towns. Now we're into subterfuge and all sorts of lying and cover-up. In verse 12 we read, And Achish trusted David, thinking David would always be his servant, because Israel was now David's enemy. Good grief. The guy who is supposed to be king and is now not only being hunted by Saul, but he's raiding his own country's town so the people will be against him forever. He is history to Israel. He's mine. But what if someone from one of those towns isn't hurt enough or what if Someone from one of those towns gets away and comes tells this this Philippine Philippine this Philippian king that this is David who's doing all this raiding. And it's not Israel's towns. So for over a year, David didn't just raid these towns. He annihilated all the people in them so there wouldn't be any survivors who could say that it was David. Again, what's the rationalization there? Well, we were supposed to wipe out everyone when we took the promised land to be separate. It was God's early judgment on those places in Canaan. So I'll just do it a little later. So far, it looks like David's plan is a success, but then the consequences of crossing that line begin to appear. His plan had gone so well that Achish now wants him to join in a new war against Israelites. Uh Uh-oh. David offers, I don't know whether you noticed this, a very ambiguous answer to Achish in chapter 28, verse 2. David says, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. In other words, Achish had said, You're mine, we want your army going with us. And he says, Well, you'll know what we're going to do as he tries to figure all this out. That sound familiar to anybody? And Achish said to David, Very well, then I'll make you my bodyguard for life. It's getting deeper. At this point, the text suddenly completely changes direction, and it leaves us hanging as to all the repercussions that we finally understand have to be coming. We have to wait a chapter or two. But as we consider this crazy sequence of events, it should make us realize the second big lesson of this chapter. The first was that we must lean on our true security. The next lesson is obvious. 
We need to learn the skills of wisdom. Proverbs 14.12 is probably the clearest proverb that can get us started on this idea. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. What we see David doing is using his own resources, relying on his own wits and ability to survive without consulting God at all about this. So even though David's great army and their families, once they went into the Philistine city, probably enjoyed having, think about this, roofs over their heads for the first time in a long time and a much more stable life in Ziklag. No more hiding in caves, no more that. They could at least live day-to-day routines and imagine what a relief that was to all these people. And even though this excursion into the safety of Gath, the Philistine city, seemed to be working quite well, now the Philistine king, Achish, puts David in such a position that something is all of a sudden at a real risk. What is it? David's future kingship is seriously at risk here. David's future kingship, when he's actually ruling, which is a type and figure and actually the throne through which God will finally bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he is putting this in real jeopardy. There's a way that seems right to a man. Can we sum up the importance of this account? One writes, The will of God for us includes more than escaping from Saul. No one disputes the malice of Saul or pretends that escaping him was, a, was just another thing on the to-do list, but the peril from Saul may not be so nasty or so damaging in the long run as being nubbed a traitor. There are a lot of parallels to this in what our enemy is trying to do to every Christian who desires to live and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, live for and follow him. To be dubbed a traitor to Christ is the strategy of the enemy. Can you see how this fits? This is the very slippery slope that David is on. It is, however, hard to see such difficulties, these long-range great ideas and have everything clear when the emergency, the immediate emergency, looks so large, is it not? It's hard to sort through these things when you haven't been sorting through them correctly and teaching yourself, preaching to yourself truth every day as it builds up to some big crisis. It's hard to just immediately say, oh, I'll get it all right. I'll know what to do if that happens. 
the odds are usually against you if that's the way you think you can live. You cannot. We fall easily also into this if-only syndrome. If only this impossible problem that is right now, that's wrenching my heart, monopolizing my thinking, and consuming my energy, if only I could get relief from it, I could go forward and get on with life and be okay. Every one of us has to deal with this. Sometimes I think I ought to have the biggest poster that I can fit on a wall in my house. And say, it says, if only, and just put a big X through it. Because that's the way we are wired to think. If I could just get past this issue, then I'll, then I'll come back to church. If I could just get past this issue, I'll talk to my wife again. If I could just get past this issue, I will try to heal that relationship. If I could just get past this, I could actually hold a job. We've got a million ways that we think like this. It's dangerous. So learning the skills of wisdom and discernment, this is a process that goes on throughout life. In other words, there's no magic formula. The Bible does give us perspectives and principles to face difficult and confusing circumstances. For example, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I've seen lots of Christians and have been tempted to this myself. Probably you have too. We read that verse and we think, well, I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to try to figure it out. I'll just trust the Lord. And what that really means is you're just in neutral. You're not trusting the Lord. You're just hoping it'll all go away. Now, in order to deal with that, we need to realize something here. This proverb does not say, don't use your understanding. It says, but don't lean on it. There's a difference. In other words, lean on the Lord and use your understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding and try to use the Lord. This is where the name it and claim it stuff that's so widespread is totally worthless. Every situation is dealt with. Satan's behind every bush. All we have to do is walk around the town and pray, and it'll fall. All these kind of things that just use one example in the Bible out of context usually, and if we do this, it's magic, and everything will, will smooth out. It's deceptive. Here's a sentence that we do not like, none of us. There is no quick fix. 
there is usually no quick fix. And as we endeavor to learn this, what we can rely on is remembering that our teacher is more merciful and patient than Saul and Achish were. So that leads us to the last, the third big lesson from this text. And that is that we, the readers of this text, we have to get a grip on grace. This account does reflect a certain sympathy and understanding of David's and his situation. But it does not hide, does it? It does not hide how calculating and ruthless David was while he was with the Philistines. This may mean that you are right now angry at David because the previous chapters won you over to how great he was. You've been moved by all the extreme situations that God's call upon David has put him in and how he handled them in faith. Has David won your heart? And now you may feel betrayed and maybe even angry at God and his word. In other words, you're dealing with how God can choose, support, sustain, and protect a man who deceives and butchers people like this. I'm wondering how close to home this is hitting everyone, knowing how close to home this hit me. But consider this. Perhaps the author, the Lord himself, is trying to correct your mistake trying to correct my mistake. You may have fallen into the trap of hero worship, of looking on your favorite Bible characters and exalting them way too highly. Why should we be surprised, shocked, and offended? If we are, I think what it says is that our theology is off. We, we don't really truly know our own hearts. And we don't want to have to face them. The text is saying that this chosen, anointed servant is made out of the same stuff as all of God's people. Everyone is a sinner. So are you. So am I. The passage will simply not allow us to view Saul only with contempt and then save all of our admiration for David. And when we do that, we get disappointed when our heroes mess up. Or we don't even want to read about Saul showing any compassion or wisdom or anything at all through this whole account. This text simply resists our every attempt to make David the mirror of all virtue. Folks, this has always been an issue, but we live in a culture now that's so messed up that it makes the big goal in life is to be a hero, even if you just put on a costume and try to be like somebody that you've elevated way too highly. we got to get a grip on grace. That's what we mean by this. 
The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to us. This is a great quote. The living God does not have clean material to work with. And don't get sentimental when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it's only sinful. It's only sinful clay the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. As long as we wallow, however subtly we do that, in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible. Never tremble before our God and never delight in Him. We must get a grip on grace. Consider that the main revelation then, and I think we've said this before and gone over it, but this is the time to really bring this back up to the surface. The main revelation, one of the main, main things that God wants us to get in all of Scripture, but especially in First and Second Samuel, is that Israel should hope in the future Messiah that is to come through David's line. Not in David. Not in Solomon. Not in anybody. Our hope should go past the good examples, the people that we do respect, which are many, and go straight to him. And if we miss that connection, we're going to have some issues. And we should do that despite the trouble that's caused by David's shortcomings. Be honest. How do you feel about David? Do you see him as a redeemed sinner who does have a heart for God? When sin is brought to attention, he usually repents quickly, sometimes not. But when he does, he writes chapters of the Bible about it. This is a man after God's own heart. God has called him to a purpose and make his point, make his desire the true Messiah to come. So we must lean on our true security. We've got to learn the skills of wisdom and be okay with knowing that it's going to take decades. And even when we do start to get it, we are so aware of how much we don't get it that we don't ever say we've got it. I hope you followed that. And lastly, we've got to get a grip on God's grace. He is the potter. We are the clay. And it's by grace in his son, with whose supper we celebrate now, specifically for the purpose of getting our attention and reminding us of this gospel of the truth about us that we need a Savior.
And God loved us so much, he provided us one who does teach us how to walk in this life in faith in him, knowing that we still mess up often, but he's preparing us for a future eternity. And we will experience victories in him. And they are glorious. And we share those joys with one another. And as we do so, we also realize that we do so on our knees, humbly asking God for his mercy and grace, knowing that we are so wired to, pro- to wander, prone to wander. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we approach the table of the Lord. Oh Lord, we thank you for in this chapter that seemed not to even mention you to learn in a great, powerful way how much we need you as we see David stumble and fall. Not fall in our in the experiences as much as just being in such dangerous ground. You know, God, we we ask that you would help us see the value of Christ, that we would see our true needs so that we recognize how great your gift to us in him is. As we come to this table, there should be joy in our hearts knowing that he has delivered us and rescued us, true? And as we come to this table, we should do so reverently and by faith.